Holy Father, we thank you for this time that we can come together and we can consider what you have had preserved for us. Help us to realize how momentous that is, that you have preserved these words so that we might be, be blessed and taught and edified by them. We pray that we might pay attention, that we might take these to be as serious as they are, that we might focus our attention. Of course, we know that there will be no edification without the involvement of your Holy Spirit and the, the teaching that comes from you. We come together in community to, to do this, and we pray that you would bless that. As always, we will pray that truth is spoken, and if there's any error spoken, that it will be corrected gently and in love, for it is in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Okay. Why study Genesis? Okay. Just like people are interested in what's going to happen at the end, people are always interested in what happened at the beginning. Boy, those, those handouts really were more confusing. I, I put out enough of them that there should be, you know, there's 30 or 40 of each on the table, and then there's more in the back, so you won't, you won't fail to have enough handouts. Looks like we're finding all sorts of fun stuff back there. I hope I didn't leave the handouts from Matthew in there. We're interested in Genesis, but that's not why we, we study this. Genesis is the beginning of a lot of things. Okay, It's the beginning of the relations of humans with God. It's the beginning of the sexes, of lying and deceit, of murder, human hatefulness, sexual violence, religious devotion, languages, nation, nations, race, piety, music. But it's foundational for many theological ideas that are really important to us. I put down just a few. Why do we worship only one God? What's the relationship between human choice and divine approval? Who gets to decide what is right? What are the consequences of doing what you want rather than what God wants? I would go so far as to say you can't understand Christianity without understanding the Old Testament. You can't, you can't comprehend many of the things that Jesus did without understanding particularly the Torah, but also, but also particularly within the Torah Genesis. It's really, really important. Sometimes we've heard in the last few months, um, actually somebody that Catherine and I went to seminary with, Andy Stanley, say something that I think was probably taken a little out of context um, in the firestorm that went after, to say, well, we can unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And I think he meant something less than some people have thought he meant. But if it, if it meant as bad as what people said, that's wrong. Okay, We can't unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. We have to know what it says. Because if we don't understand it, we're not going to understand the New Testament. We're not going to understand what's required of us. Everything starts in Genesis. The book of Genesis, like the rest of the Bible, it's, is just what says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is in God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, 
and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And of course, in that context, the scripture was the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. So while we don't always preach from the Old Testament, um, it's really important for us to, to know it. Okay, so Genesis is the first book. Hey, you knew that already, right? It's the first book in our Bibles. It's the first book in the Hebrew Bibles. It's the first book of the, the Torah or the Pentateuch. The Torah is the law. That's what the, the Jewish people called the first five books was the Torah. The, the whole Old Testament is called the Tanakh, the T for Torah, and then the N for the Hebrew word for prophets, and then the um, K for the Hebrew word for the writings, the rest of the Old Testament. It's the first book. It's foundational. We have to look at this like we look at any book and say, what is what kind of writing is this? What genre is the literary term? And you know that my style of teaching is relatively heavy on the whole literary thing. I'm trying to think about the way this is written and the way this is constructed and the way this is structured. How does this relate to that? How does why does he say it here this way? Does he look back to something? Does he look forward to something? We're going to, we're going to try to do it that way. Sometimes we say that we consider the Bible to be literally true. And you've, many of you have heard me say this before. I think that's an unfortunate phrase to say literally true. Sometimes it's clearly not exactly what we mean. So if you want to go ahead and turn for the first thing to Song of Solomon, chapter 4. This is my, one of my two favorite examples. Of, I could have a thousand examples, but here's one of my two favorite, just at the beginning of chapter 4. How beautiful you are. Remember, Song of Solomon, he's, he's uh, praising his wife's beauty. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Well, not literal doves, right? And it gets worse. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. Nobody's wife would like to hear this. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Meaning she has all her teeth. Okay? Your lips, which is good, which is good, but not literal exactly, not literal sheep. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with elegance. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Well, that's a very odd description And in fact, you wouldn't dream of thinking that literally. It's poetry, right? It's poetry. And so we take it figuratively there. How about this passage from Psalm 63, 61 rather? For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. The tower is another, is that same image, right? That she had for her, the strength of her neck, which is probably the strength of her character. Here it's the strength of God's protection. Strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter 
of your wings, right? Well, we don't think God has literal wings. Um, it's poetry. We interpret poetry differently than we do the newspaper. Well, maybe we have more skepticism for the newspaper. But anyway, we, we interpret it differently. If you read a book of history, you think that they're trying to tell you just the facts sequentially. They're not either, but, but we think of it like that. Okay, We take poetry one way, we interpret it one way, we interpret historical narrative like First and Second Samuel a different way, law like Leviticus a different way, a letter like Philemon a different way. Um, we look at the prophetic parts of Daniel differently still. Instead of saying we interpret the Bible literally, I would like to just say we interpret the Bible literarily. And seminary, they said, historically, grammatically, rhetorically. Okay, and, they, and that was the way of saying it. But we could just say literarily. We read it like we would read any kind of literature. We have to think about what it's saying and the form in which it's saying it. All this is old news, right? Most, like almost all of you have been here through this over and over again. But that's the, that's the foundational thing. We have to think about what we're reading and the genre. So, sometimes it's hard. It's hard in Job. It's hard in Ecclesiastes. It was hard in Revelation. There were parts of Revelation that you were like, hmm. You know, remember, famously, people have come up with all sorts of very, very literalistic interpretations of parts of Revelation. And have said, Revelation have said, oh, so those are helicopters. You know, I don't think Ken said they were helicopters, but uh, maybe I missed that week. But anyway, you have to think about the genre. So the first thing that you would read if you started reading commentaries on Genesis, um, as you might notice, the people often point out the similarities between parts of Genesis, particularly the first part, and the the myths of the ancient Near East, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh. Maybe you read that in school. And they will say, well, look, there's this sequence of events that's very similar to Gilgamesh, and so this is myth. And, and honestly, the, as a first thing, we shouldn't be surprised that there are similarities. It would be very unusual if there were not similarities from things that were written in the same area and at roughly the same time. Um, if you look at speeches by Republican politicians and Democratic politicians, they have a lot more in common than either of them would have in common with, say, um, I don't know, a Chinese politician from the 4th century B.C., okay? It, those those are, would be much more different than these two guys that say that they're completely opposite. So, okay, is Genesis myth? Well, I, one of the handouts, I went ahead and wrote this out, um, or typed this out. Um, somebody named Thomas Cahill, who wrote some very interesting books, the first one being the most interesting, How the Irish Saved Civilization, um, he wrote this. There are real differences, literary differences, differences of tone and taste, but far more important, differences of substance and approach to material between Gilgamesh and Genesis. The anonymous authors of Gilgamesh tell their story in the manner of a myth. There is no attempt to convince us that anything in the story ever took place in historical time. 
The text of the Bible, though, is full of clues that the authors are attempting to write history of some sort. There is in the Bible a kind of specificity, a concreteness of detail, a concern to get things right that convinces us that the writer has no doubt that each of the main events of he chronicles happened. More than this, that they happened, that God spoke to Abraham, that what we would say Abraham, but he's using the, the Hebrew pronunciation, and told him to leave Sumer for the unknown, that God spoke to Moshe, Moses, and told him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, is the whole point. These are not like Gilgamesh archetypal tales with a moral at the end. They share nothing essential with the other ancient myths from Gilgamesh to Aesop to Grimm's fairy tales. If the stories of Cupid and Psyche or Beauty and the Beast never happened in real time, no one is the poorer for that. But if Avraham and Moshe never existed or if they did not receive their commissions from God, their stories have no point at all. If if that's what we think of as myth, sometimes people use it a different way, but if, if that's what we think about, that's not what Genesis is. Okay, nothing like that. The, the book of Genesis is supposed to be taken as something that actually happened. So I'm going to suggest that at least as a starting hypothesis, we consider that the, the genre of Genesis is either, we could either call it theological history or we call it narrative theology. And I do that because of the form and the content. First of all, the form is narrative. There's a story that's being told through Genesis. Okay? Story doesn't have to mean not true. Story can be true. There's a narrative through Genesis. So that's the form. The content, well, the content is, is a history, of, especially the second half, is a history of the nation of Israel. Right, It's going to tell how Israel comes to be enslaved in Egypt, which is the, is the beginning of the book of Exodus. Okay? But it's profoundly theological, especially at the beginning, but all through. You're going to see that, this, that the big character in the book is God. It's not Abraham. And it's not, it's not Joseph. It's, it's not anybody. It's not Adam. It's God. Okay, that's, that's who this is about. So that's theology. Okay, authorship. You always have to talk about things like this at the beginning. Um, author of, of the Pentateuch, the Torah, and therefore the author of Genesis, usually taken to be Moses. Okay? If it bothers you that events here happen before Moses' time, so how could he know, and events happen after Moses' time, so how could he know? Well, okay. Nobody ever said, nobody ever said, that Moses sat down and from his own brain typed out the whole book and left it done. Like, I'm done. It's done. It'll never change. That's not what anybody thinks, okay? Um, You have to, no matter how strongly you believe in inerrancy, and I think I promised a little lecture on inerrancy at some point, but not today. Although I think I promised it for today, right, Ken? Yeah. Um, no, no matter how strongly you believe in inerrancy, nobody thinks that. Moses had to have some way of finding out what happened before him, and he had to 
somebody had to write the part that's after Moses died, too. You know, so basically there had to be some something more going on than that. But see, I, I managed to make sure that I would be correct in what I was saying by saying, sat down and typed, okay? So I knew that something like that might come up, so I eliminated that by using the typing metaphor. They don't think he typed, right? I don't think so. Yeah, right, okay, probably, probably not. God gave him a Smith Corona when Moses went off to college. Okay, um, Anyway, um, certainly Jesus and the New Testament writers talk about um, the, these books as the books of Moses and say things like, um, now for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Um, okay. Okay. I didn't say I believe Okay. My my point is a different one, okay? I I'm I'm not worried about that. I'm just saying this is not something we need to spend too much concern on, okay? Um if I if I say now when Moses wrote this or if I say when the author wrote this, you don't have to read anything weird into it, okay? It's just we're going to sit here we're going to look at the text that's in front of us. The text that's been in front of human people for thousands of years. Okay, that's what we're interpreting. We're not going to worry about it. If you if you study this in college, maybe they talked a lot about where did you know the J E D P. You ever hear that? If you didn't, don't worry about it. Okay, um, it's really not important, and it keeps on changing. And they keep on saying, oh, no, maybe there's no E after all. Okay, well, anyway, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you don't need to know. (laughs) The books are inspired because God wrote them, not because Moses wrote them. Okay? We're taking this to be God's word. The Hebrew... I don't think so. I don't think it matters, and I don't think it's true. It seems to me that that the that the way the Old Testament books are laid out is generally by what would fit in a scroll, and I don't think all five of these books would fit in a scroll. Yeah. So I don't know what you're talking about, but that's not unusual, is it, Jonathan? No. Okay. So I don't think so, but it's. Okay. Uh, Dr. Constable was one of the is one of the professors at Dallas Seminary, and he he wrote um, kind of a running commentary for the NET Bible online, and that's what Jonathan's referring to. Okay, the name in Hebrew is Bereshit. 
which is just the first word. This is normal for the, the Hebrew names of the books. It's just the first word in the book, which is in the beginning. In the beginning. Bereshit bara. In the beginning God created. Yep. Um, our English first word, our word is Genesis, okay, which now we come later to think of as a word for beginnings, but that's probably because of the book of Genesis, not the other way around. That book, that word comes from the Latin word that translates a really important word in Hebrew. The, the, Latin, the Hebrew word is toledot, which means these are the generations of, or something to that effect. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. So, Bereshit and Genesis are the words in the, the logo that I made. Now, let's go ahead and pull out this thing that's the chart of the book, the one that's, again, if you were, we did do this, I did this in, in 2003 and four with some help, I think, from Isaac at the time. Oops. Um, so this, this is similar, very similar to what we had back then. If you were looking for literary structure and, and you were a reader of Hebrew, in the, if you looked at the book for the structure of it, you would pretty quickly realize that every so often... Um, there's this word used, toledot, toledot, these are the generations of, or this is what happened to, or something like that. Um, it's used m- multiple times, so that it breaks up the book into ten sections, actually eleven sections, because there's one part that comes before the first toledot. So that in 2.4, it says, now this is what become toledot, the heavens and the earth. And then 5.1 says this is what became of Adam, 6.9, this is what became of Noah, this is what became of the sons of Noah, of Shem, of Terah, of Ishmael, of Isaac, of Esau, of Jacob. Okay, so it breaks it up into different sections. And part of the, you just, you can't not notice that, okay? Um, it, it seems like the author is doing that on purpose. He's breaking it up. And so along the top of the chart, um, there's the gray and white alternating sections that show where the toledotes come in. And then there's something else. And by the way, people go possibly a little crazy on all of this um, and make it more than just a structuring device. And they find, Ken will not be surprised to know that there's a, find that some of them think there's a big chiasm in the toledotes, but... I don't think we need to do that today. Um, it is a structuring device. It is something, just like if you wrote a book, you would have chapters. Well, for goodness sakes, you'd have paragraphs, right? You would, you would have paragraphs. You'd break it up. You'd try to help the reader so that they could see what the organization was. Um, take, take these to be that. There's another thing going on. And, and I think of this as the creation, disaster, redemption part. The first part is very different than the second part. 1 through 11 is one kind of thing. But then somewhere in 11 to 12, it changes. Because the last part, lots more than half, it's not the last half of the book, it's, it's like the last three quarters of the book, is about 
it's a it's very obviously a narrative, right? I mean, it's about Abraham and his son and his son and his sons. Um, so there's this first part, and then really in the first part, there's two parts, right? Because there's the part before the fall and there's the part after the fall. So there's this creation told twice. Interesting, right? You might not have done that, but God did that. Told twice. And then there's a disaster that occurs and continues to occur and continues to get worse and worse. And you're like, oh, my gosh. And then there's this other thing. So I call that um, at the bottom there God's creation, one and two, and then man's rebellion and God's plan of redemption, three through 11. And then finally, God's redemptive work through the patriarchs. The patriarchs, of course, are what we call Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and his brothers. So, the shape of the book is there, this top line. You know, I, I love doing these things, and you can tell this, and so you just have to put up with me explaining it. Starts out really good, right? Because God made it perfectly, and then it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. But eventually, we begin to see that God's going to get it all fixed. And that there at the bottom, there's these five little blocks that are in red. The red is the redemption part. The red is the repair part. The red is where God is making things, going to make things right. And there's hints in those first five blocks. God hints at redemption in 315. He, he, he has this terrible thing where Cain kills Abel, but God is going to protect Cain. There's some, there's some hint there. And then he gives a son to replace Abel, who's been killed. Um, there's, a, there's a flood, but God graciously provides for salvation of certain people. And, and there's um, grace given in the covenant with Noah. So those little red things show that those are like foreshadowing of what's going to happen later in the book and really later in the whole Old Testament. Okay. And by the way, you, you know, we're not going to do so much of this just lecturing thing later. We'll talk a lot more. But right now, I kind of have to clear the decks so that we can get to the text. As we study, we have to have some attempt to figure out what the purpose of the book is. Um, if Moses were writing a social history of the patriarchs, then we would just say, well, 1 through 11 is just the prologue. Um, if Moses were writing a cosmology text about, about creation and, and the, the science of the thing, then we would think that the rest of it was there for the purpose of showing that the first part was historical. Whatever is going on in Genesis, it's theological. It's, as much, it's more about God than it is about anything else. Dr. Ross, and you'll hear, I think Billy and I will both quote from Dr. Ross a lot, although Dr. Ross was gone from DTS by the time you got there, right? Um, Dr. Ross was a Hebrew professor at Dallas Seminary. Really, uh, did you, was he there when you were there? Yeah. Really a, a wonderful guy. Um, very calm. He's one of those people who he was not trying to convince you he was right. He was just telling you what he thought. 
and he was calm about it. And he uh, just just very very bright fellow. Um, he's written a, a great Billy has it. He'll hold it up. He he wrote a great um, commentary on Genesis called Creation and Blessing. Um, and so we'll probably refer to that more than once. What what did he do that was funny over there? It's thick. Yeah, that's true. You don't. I'm not telling you you have to go out and buy one, but um, it's very interesting. If you if you ever want to preach through Genesis, you want to buy one. He says this. Genesis lays a foundation for the rest of the Pentateuch. In writing this work for Israel, Moses wished to portray God as the founder and creator of all life. This account shows that the God who created Israel is the God who created the world and all who are in it. Thus, the theocracy, meaning the nation of Israel, which was headed by God, is founded on the sovereign God of creation. That nation, her law, and her customs and beliefs all go back to who God is. Israel would here learn what kind of God was forming them into a nation. The implications of this are great. I won't read all of this quote, but it's on one of the handouts. First, that it means that everything that exists must be under God's control. Second, the account reveals the basis of the law, which will come later in the Pentateuch. Third, the account reveals that God is a redeeming God. And we use that word redemption a lot. And just to unpack it real quickly, you can start with the idea that redemption is making something that's broken or bent or marred, making it whole again. Okay, That's at least a basic part of the idea of redemption. God is a redeeming God. Now, I cannot see the clock. I've got like 10 minutes? Yeah, okay, like 8 minutes. Or 18 minutes. No, no. We won't, ha- we won't have any homework in here, okay? We're not going to give any tests. Um, we're not going to, you know, make other people come up and explain the difficult passages. Other than we might make Jonathan explain the sons of God and the daughters of men. But anyway, um, no, he'll be ready if we ever get there, right? Um, I, at least, am notorious. Billy and I are teaching this together. I, I'm sorry, I should, probably should have said that at the beginning. Exactly what teaching that, this together will mean is unclear, partly because I, I don't, well, he, that, he did have a part already. Um, partly, partly it's unclear because um, Billy's going to be preaching a bunch in the next month. So I really don't know that Billy's going to have to teach Sunday school at the same time. So probably it's just me for a little while. But um, we'll eventually do something. Isaac and I always would trade off whenever I had to be out of town. Um, we're going to try to do some sort of more, more um, involved. But never will Billy be responsible for what Al said. So if I'm ever gone and Billy's teaching, don't you dare say, Billy... I really, Al said this, but I really don't agree with it. What do you think? Don't do that to him, okay? Just wait till I get back. You can, you can do, say whatever you want to me. Okay. I'm going to try, nevertheless, to give you stuff to do. Because if you spend 45 minutes a week, 55 minutes maybe, um, here, 
studying, that's not much time. That's a very small commitment. If you'd like to make a bigger commitment to your own spiritual maturity, then you could do some things during the week. And we'll try to give you some things to do. Um, For one thing, um, so far you have three handouts, four if you count the one that's the list of all the places that Genesis is mentioned in the New Testament, that will give you something to do through the week. And I'm going to give you another assignment. Here's the assignment. Hold on. I want you to read the book of Genesis beginning to end in one sitting. Okay? <laughs> okay? It, it, it would take you, it would take you, in this group, the fastest people would be about an hour and a half, and I think the slowest people would be about, well, three, except three hours, but that doesn't count the time when you have to be asleep, okay? So I do admit that sometimes if you're reading something long that's difficult, you might fall asleep, okay? So uh, that's one of the reasons for listening to books on tape. That's right. That could be like watching the Jaguars. Anyway, so it's, it's no longer than that, okay? That's about how long it would take you to read it, okay? If you are going like, no, 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 I am not sitting down to read. And by the way, don't lie down. If you lie down, we know you're going to sleep, okay? But if you sat down a second and, and read it, I think no more than three hours. But if you can't do that, then break it up. We'll break it up into six parts. It's in the turn. One of the handouts has a gray box on the back. Um, That's where I put all this down. I broke it up for you. You can read it in those sections. We'll read the very first part today. But you could break it up and you could read it. If you read it all at once or even in one week, you will get a sense of the whole that you will never get doing it half a chapter six verses, you know, that kind of thing. You'll never get the sense of what's going on overall unless you kind of read it through. Even so, a slow reader like myself that read that much. Believe it or not, it really wouldn't take you more than, than those three hours. You could check out a tape, or you could get it offline. I'm sure there's free many places of somebody with a deep voice reading Genesis, right? It'll be great. You know, I think, uh, what's his name? No, I'm not going to read it to you. It takes Alexa just over three hours to read it. There we go. It takes Alexa, which is not a deep voice, um, reading three hours, just over three hours. Okay, so Jim has checked this out. You checked it out. Okay, good. So that's not long. That's a one day out of your week. You can play it? In the Bible app on your phone, you can play it out loud. Anyway, but I do still advise you not to be lying down during the middle of this. Okay, if you do that or something, something like that, you'll get um, the most benefit out of it. Um, even if you don't, if you're like, I'm not, this is I'm not doing homework. I'm just doing what we're doing here. You'll still get a sense of what's going on, a greater understanding of the book, and I hope insight into God's desire and ability to work in your life. Okay. Last thing. Two minutes. 
Okay, last thing. In order to study what is here in the book, we're going to have to fairly ruthlessly not do other things. Okay? Some things we're not going to be able to do. We were not going to talk about the sources, right? I already eliminated that JEDP stuff. We're done. That's all you get, okay? If you want to know more about what people have speculated, you can read about it. We're also not going to do um, uh, studies in evolution. We're not going to do studies in human genetics. We're not going to do geology and fossils and things like that for a couple of reasons. One, it would completely distract us from what we are going to do. And secondly, there's nobody here qualified to talk about those things. And please understand, I mean that as a serious objection. There is no one here, there's, there's, about, there's a handful of people here who have science training, okay? But, but nobody who's qualified to talk about those things in detail. So it would be dumb for us to, to talk about that because it would be just the, the thinnest little guess. We're actually, we actually have a lot of people who are, are qualified to talk about what the Bible is about. And what, I mean, we've got one, two, um, three, four, five, six, seven, and I might have missed somebody, eight. We've got eight people here who... And again, I still might have missed somebody. We've got at least eight people here who have actually been to seminary and have had, you know, some long period of trying to study about this stuff. And most everybody in this room has put in hours and hours and hours of studying the Bible themselves. Okay, so we have the ability to talk about these things intelligently. But there's other things we couldn't talk about intelligently, and we're not going to waste the short time we have. Um. We're also really not going to talk about creation versus evolution. Um, that's just not the point of what we're doing here. There are different views of creation, and of course I believe in creation. Please don't anybody say I don't believe in creation. Of course I believe in creation. I do. There's different views of these things, and they're different views held by very orthodox, committed people who believe the Bible is true. Okay? And the most important stuff in Genesis really isn't in dispute. Um, Ken sent me something, what, a month ago? Um, talking about what this, this particular writer thought were the ten things that all um, evangelicals, was his word, um, would agree about, about creation. And, and while I'm not sure all ten of them would be agreed by everybody, pretty much there's this common understanding. Well, we're going to stick to the text. We're going to look at the text and we're going to spend our time on that. Um, Well, if I could have like another extra minute, I just want to read the beginning. I'm going to use the ESV this time um, translation. Obviously, you guys have different translations. The ESV, the English Standard Version, is is really fairly similar to the New American Standard, which is what Ken always preaches from, or almost always preaches from. Um, except for it doesn't, it doesn't. There's some stylistic differences, but but many many times it's just really almost word for word the same. Genesis one one. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And in fact, I'm reading this off of one of the handouts. And you go, why? Why don't you just use your Bible? Well, I actually took that handout and, and organized it in a way that was, the structure was more obvious. Um, and I put some little in gray notes to the side. You can use this or you can use your own Bibles. I also highlighted places where the Hebrew words were the same because you can't always tell what the Hebrew is saying uh, from the translation. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let, there, let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the night from the day. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was so, that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with the swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moves which, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply. On the earth, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and the beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And that's set out a little bit differently because it's kind of like a little poem. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, henna, that's the henna, Joan, Yep. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the, all the earth and every tree with the seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now this is chapter 2, but this is really the end of this first section. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So that's where we'll start next week. We won't get through all of it, I wouldn't guess. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just the, the vast display of who you are that you give us in this part of Genesis and all of Genesis and the whole Hebrew scriptures and in the, in the Greek scriptures as well. We thank you that you have preserved these written things for us. We pray for ourselves that we would have the diligence to attend, to listen, to pay attention to what you have given us, that we might respond to you by caring for your word. For in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.